0: Hi, everybody. I'm Fred Long. Uh, thanks for uh, your patience. I thought I was in a different room. So I was like, and they're like, no. And so I was like, where's Norton Hall? So I'm like, coming all the way down. So anyway, uh, I, uh, I teach uh, at Asbury Theological Seminary. And um, I just returned from uh, Berlin. So here's some highlights of my trip. Climb this mountain. It's on the edge of the Bohemian Forest. My uncle-in-law erected this cross. They climb up Really high and every like 30 years the wood brought so you have to put a new one up So it was like 80 men and a a horse team. He was telling all about it. It It's pretty cool So he's a really good woodworker Uh, I saw the Brothers Grimm. These are just highlights of the trip. I just i am just you know, just got back So that's yeah, the Brothers Grimm Gravesite. Uh, Here's a snail. I love nature. That's a pretty big snail. My first continental caught fish. Trout from my uncle's pond, but uncle in law, but I just threw him like breadcrumbs and they ate it. So, Jacob Serone, I don't know if any of you know Jacob, but he's studying over there. He's an up and coming uh, patristic scholar, and uh, this was amazing. This is the Danube River at Regenberg, and this man was just sitting there painting. Pretty amazing. Some other highlights are right here, but uh, I, I assure you that I'm not drunk or hungover. I'm just a little jet lag. So anyway, um, well, one morning I woke up and I thought, I need to write how to study lists. And it sounded kind of strange, but I, as I went into my office, I've been kind of brewing this, this idea, I've been brewing, gelling my mind that lists are very important. And so I sat down and in about an hour, uh, or so, I, I, I drafted out this, this uh, study guide, and it's available if you go to tinyurl.com uh, backslash long lists. You can find, I think you'll find a copy of this presentation minus the highlight uh, reel, but, um, but then you should be able to find this uh, list, uh, this, this description of how to study lists. Now, I have it in a couple of my books. Uh, I have an exegetical manual called In Step with God's Word, which is a 12-step process of interpreting God's word. And this is written at three levels, a lay level, which I call primary survey, a secondary study level, which is like pastors, and some educated laity can do that kind of thing. And then I have a tertiary research level, which, and I use this textbook actually for my PhD students. Uh, I teach New Testament research methods so a version of this can be found there i also have a little discussion in my koine greek grammar textbook so most basically what is a list and what's the deal with lists a list is three or more items presented together to provide greater understanding about what is deemed important by this definition two items do not constitute a list although this should not lessen their interpretive importance as a doublet Lists implicitly involve the semantic relationship of reoccurrence of three or more items, the importance of which is typically guaranteed by the space and prominence awarded them in the discourse. The proper interpretation of biblical lists will always contribute to the proper interpretation of the entire passage and for understanding the overarching concerns of the biblical author. So lists are very important. I began re- reflecting on why is this cognitively? I mean, lists are very old. Uh, some of our oldest written texts are like lists of like things bought and sold and these kinds of things. What what someone owns. Um, lists. Uh, my first one of my first houses that I own, and I guess my second house in in. Uh, in uh, Milwaukee was a duplex. and I remember writing out 35 things that needed to be fixed. And that list was like a governing reality in my life. So lists help us get organized. So cognitively, they introduced items more easily since they have our same or similar grammatical value oftentimes. Oftentimes, lists can be recognized because the items have an equivalent grammatical value. Lists then group together. And simultaneously distinguish the items from the surrounding context so once you see a list the author has afforded them space and kind of a continuity that they form a grouping and this grouping distinguishes them from the surrounding context but then also uh, causes us to think about the relationship of the list listed items to one another hence lists bring focus and prominence to the items in that are being grouped together I think that they probably then provide reader comprehension possibly even promote memorization and uh, and by such grouping and such prominence now sometimes we'll see this in Ephesians there's variations in the lists and some things are like is this really a list or not but thinking through the nature of the variations because whenever you have a change Uh, We get bored with things being the same all the time. And so if you get a big list and then you introduce a change into it, and I could show you examples in 2 Corinthians, but we're not talking about 2 Corinthians, but Paul shifts like prepositions and then he moves to participles in the middle of a big list, and I think it's uh, 2 Corinthians 6. And those little shifts help maintain our attention and, and really ask, well, why is he shifting? Why is the author shifting at this moment? So finally, lists invite consideration of the organization, organization of the items, what meaning underlines their distinct content, their grouping, their ordering, and their contextual placement in the discourse. And I would argue that in Ephesians, this, the lists are very strategic. And Paul is really after the formation of believers. And we'll talk a little bit about the context of Ephesians, but then we'll just I, was, I wanna jump right into these lists. But um, so he's, he's trying to help shape their worldview, their beliefs and values and understanding of the world, as well as then to give them a set of priorities of things to do and things not to do, uh, people to be like, people not to be like. So I don't know if you've been able to access the, uh, that URL uh, and download this, but this is basically that what I sat down in, in an hour and kind of wrote out Um, There was another component to it where I gave like a preliminary listing of the lists in the New Testament, and I, I gave a caveat. I said I didn't find all of them, but I went biblical book by biblical book, and I just began scanning and just remembering some. And in Ephesians, my listing was grossly inadequate. As I was preparing this talk, I'm like, wow, I missed a lot. I missed a lot, but I did give the caveat. So this has a little bit of introduction. Here is talking about the material, you know, the, the content, the scope, the referencing. And by scope I mean whether the list is exhaustive or if, if it's meant to be limited. Um, the content, obviously, are we talking with, dealing with ideas, persons, attributes, processes, places, concepts, events. Referencing has to do with whether the list is backward referring, anaphoric, or if it's cataphoric, is it pointing forward to something. And then I talk about some formal um, structural um, f- aspects, whether it's a, a, a progressive development, a prioritized inner to outer movement. And just thinking of these categories, and it may take, may take you a while, it's like, oh, I'm category. This is so much jargon already. But it's worth it. It's worth it. I'm going to show you some lists in Ephesians that are very formative. And in my own life, I remember preaching a sermon on one um, on bitterness and, and not giving way to anger. And that list, and we'll make sure we look at that, I love that list, uh, really shows an inner to outer escalation. And our New Testament authors are, are quite psychologically and socially profound. And so when they provide these lists we really need to pay attention. In fact, I I, with my, I shared this research with my counseling, one of my counseling colleagues, and he was studying John Wesley and his use of lists. And he said his use of lists is super purposeful. And we should always pause and it's like, why are these things in this order? And so he wrote, uh, I think, a chapter in one of his books about, about this in the writings of John Wesley. There's some other things, semantic structures, you know, climax. Are there other kinds of structures, contrast, purpose, other kinds of things? Well, this is is kind of a guide um, to guide us uh, in in your study of lists. So just in general, before we jump into Ephesians, I just want to lay a little bit of uh, groundwork here. I believe this is a circular letter. I think it was meant to go beyond Ephesus, Ephesus being the regional uh, provincial um, center. I, Paul's obviously a prisoner. I believe he's writing this from Caesarea Maritima. Uh, he was escorting, uh, taking the collection of the, his converts, uh, Gentile mainly, to Jerusalem. He delivered it, and there was this disruption. And it's actually while he's there, some Jews say, it says Jews from Asia say, hey, this is the guy. He speaks against our people. This temple and the law, they provide a list. <laughs> it's in, I think it's in Acts 21. And he's brought a Gentile into the temple. Get him. And so that's when he's arrested. And you know probably the rest of the story, right? He's, there's a plot against him. It's made known. And he gets a military escort out and up to Caesarea Maritima. And he's sitting there for two years. Now, at this point, Paul has been writing letters like every year. I don't think he's sitting there twiddling his thumbs. In fact, he's just been exiled, essentially, from his country. And Ephesians represents this kind of global perspective of what is God doing. How are Jews and Gentiles related in Christ? What is God up to? And moreover, uh, Caesarea Maritima is a huge imperial uh, cult site. And so probably every day he's looking out at this huge temple dedicated to the imperial cult. And he has a different gospel to proclaim, a different Lord to proclaim. And so this is just, I think this will inform some of the lists that we see. In fact, throughout Ephesians, it is full of political topics and themes. And in critical scholarship, one, people don't think Paul wrote it. Two, they date it later. Three, they think that he's, you know, the author is combating Gnosticism. The author is not combating Gnosticism, rather is speaking in political language and jargon of his day. And some of the lists will actually deal with this in a quite dramatic way. And some more of this material will be presented uh, tomorrow when I talk about New Testament vocabulary in a classical context. So if you're able to attend that, you'll get more of a deep dive into that culture. Okay. So tentative chronology. I think Paul's writing this in his Caesarean imprisonment. E. Earl Ellis, I love him. He's a great scholar. If you haven't read his stuff, you need to get his stuff and read it. I think he's out of the Baptist tradition. Great scholar. I love it. Uh, He's got a book called The Making of the New Testament Documents or something like that. Great book. He also agrees that this is likely when Paul wrote. Ephesians. E. Earl Ellis. yeah anything written by him but he's got this this uh, the making of the New Testament documents I think is the name of it it's a, it's a tome like this and he's works through the dating of the New Testament laying out the historical arguments the exegetical arguments and it's it's an excellent piece of work okay so here's this imperial temple that's in Caesarea Maritima where uh, Augustus and Roma are being worshiped. I mean, this is a big temple complex. So Paul is sitting in Caesarea Maritima, seeing this, and then writing about Christ being the Lord and the Son of God. So here's the list that I found in Ephesians. And I've set this PowerPoint up so that I can bounce back and forth. So we're not obviously going to get to all of these. So I have to do a little bit of prioritization. And maybe if um, you know, maybe see if there's, there's some that you might be more interested in in others. But um, I do want to make sure that we look at (laughs) the anger escalation. And uh, probably you want to look at uh, the struggling struggling against the escalating evils, God's messianic armor. These are really great. The virtues. So we'll see. I mean, I can talk fast. But if you have questions, go ahead and stop me. And uh, I like to entertain questions as we go. So here's the first list, OK? So the first uh, verse 3 to 14 in the Greek text is one big long sentence. Surprising, there is not a list, although you do have some repetitions, such as the praise of his glory, that kind of thing. But it doesn't really constitute a list. But here's the first list where, where he's praying for them, that God would, would give them a spirit of revelation um, in order that they would, they would know. And so these are certain things that Paul is praying for his, his audience that they would know. Now, this list is in the form of an indirect question. And that always, that's, that's kind of puzzling. Why an indirect question? Because he didn't need to list it that. He didn't need to put it as an indirect question. We know it's an indirect question because he's using tis. What is the hope of his calling? What is the wealth of his glory, of his inheritance and among the saints? and. T, what is the superpassing greatness of his power towards us who are believing according to the working of the power of his might? And that's, that's amazing. So there's a threefold question. What, what, what? I think the use of questions makes it more prominent. When we ask questions, it asks the audience to engage. Now, I think these questions There's something I've noticed in Paul. In his letters, he often prays for people and says, I've been praying for you. And uh, what's interesting is that the things that he's praying for, he eventually writes about to them. Prayer leads to action, right? It's like Jesus saying to his disciples, pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out harvesters, Matthew 9, 35. Boom, next verse, he sends them out. Prayer is like a preparation for action. And so these are actually tremendous themes that Ephesians will address. Later, he's gonna talk about one hope and, and one calling, the hope of his calling. He's gonna talk about the glory of the inheritance that we're awaiting to be involved in God's kingdom and, and Christ's kingdom in, in a future time. And, and this language, by the way, is, is really important, really important in Asia Minor. The emperor is, is uh, taking and stealing people's inheritances. You gotta remember that the early Christians were disenfranchised from a lot of things. What could they participate in in good conscience? What spaces could they go to? What could they look forward to? And the fact that Paul is saying, look, God's got you covered. He's wealthier than the emperor. Okay, the emperor is like handing out money to everybody. He owned all of Egypt. When there are famines, poof, he sent a ship there. And, and Paul is saying, guess what? God is more wealthy than anyone else. Okay, you've got a great inheritance. Stay true to the faith. And and then finally, there's a great power that's working in you. And I love this, this idea of this power because the resurrection of Jesus is, is set loose in, in believers. And this power is being stressed by the repetitions you can see the four different power words used right there, and that is for effect. And then the next verse actually is going to lead to the next list, uh, which is that God has raised him up. Um, And so here's some other notes that I'm just going to skip over. So God worked this power out in Christ and raised him from the dead and seated him as his right hand in the heavenly places, Okay. Now, how significant are the heavenly places? In chapter 1, verse 3, he says that we've been blessed in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing, okay? So Christ has secured a a position that is higher above all other positions. Now, this list stresses that. This list is is very clear that, that there is no position above Christ's. Now, people will debate what are these things, rule and authority and power. Um, There's inclusive scope here. These are probably like positions that a little bit are are abstracted. Um, And so you have inclusive scope at the beginning, all rule, and then at the end, every name that is named. Now, Clinton Arnold, you may know of his work on this, he's read Ephesians from a magic perspective. Kind of like that, Paul is is helping secure the worldview of believers against kind of magical practices. And every name being named, this is kind of what you did with magic: is you name thing. If you could name something, you 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 get power over that deity. But um, I'm not so sure that is the right context because these are political words. This word arche, uh, I think I've got a slide that shows it was a was the, what what people referred to as the Roman world. The rule of the Romans was called the Arche. And so I believe that these may be uh, political positions of rule. And every name being named, one thing about the emperors is that they accumulated names for themselves. And you look at their coins, it indicates how many times they will receive this honor and this name. And pater patriae is another name that they have. But in any case, Not only in this age, but also in the one to come, Christ is in the most supreme ruling position. And he put all things in subjection under him. Okay, so if we know anything about Christ, he is at the highest point of ruling power above everything. And uh, so that list is very significant. So here's some things that I've been talking about. Uh, I found this work... uh, dated 1905. It's an index on the customary nomenclature of public and religious authority of the Romans, translated in the Greek language. And by the way, this list goes off the PowerPoint. This is the word arche, rule, all rule. He's above all rule. Look at all the different titles that are found in Latin and then translated into Greek. Christ is above all of those. He's above all of those. And it's, it's quite amazing, the statement that that uh, Paul is making. Now the next list is found in chapter two where Paul um, there's a bit of a, a, a grammatical lap. we could say it's like a, in two, one through four, Paul starts a, a grammatical sequence and then he restarts it in verse five. "You are once dead in your transgressions and he comes back to it right here in verse five. Um, but In verse four, Paul has just affirmed that God has met our sinfulness with love and mercy and has shown kindness to us, okay? And what has God done? He's met us right where we're the ugliest and the baddest and the worst. And because of his great love and mercy, he's done certain things for us in Christ. And this list is amazing because of the the verbal repetitions each of these verbs begins with soon. Soon epo pi esen. Made alive with Christ. Then a little aside, you, sa- you have been saved by grace. And he's raised you up. Soon gear uh, in. He's raised us up and soon akathisen. He sat us in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Soon, soon, soon with Christ, with Christ, with Christ. God has done these things. He's made us alive with Christ. Now, people will argue that this is positional, which, okay, I'm fine with that, but I believe it's a concurrent reality. If you go to the book of Hebrews chapter 12, Mount Zion is a place that's happening right now where there's angels worshiping God and the, uh, the saints, uh, spirits of saints perfected are there I believe that there's something happening in the heavenly realms right now. Now, if you knew a little bit about the political ideology, the deceased emperors, and sometimes some of their family members, when they died, they went up to heaven and were seated among the stars, literally seated. And I've done research on this and tracked this on out through Roman literature. Actually, I can find it in Cicero, and it's actually a Persian astral eschatology which actually is found in Daniel. You go look at Daniel 12, and we're gonna be seated in the heavens. We're gonna be seated in like stars. And Philippians is present as well. Paul is saying that when believers die, and he's reasoning this out too, you can see it in his letters. At first, in the first Thessalonians, he's kind of like, well, when the second coming happens, you know, all this stuff is gonna happen. That's kind of far away. But then as he gets closer to the reality, He starts talking about, it's better for me to live, I mean, to live for you. But if I die, I'll go be with him, right? In Philippians, he's he's thinking, he's actually envisioning him possibly dying and going to be with the Lord. And I think in Paul's mind, what's happening is that he realizes that believers are Christ's body. And when we die, we go to be with the Lord. And so I don't think this is merely positional as in like only in the far future for us for some believers who have already died, this has become a reality. This has become a reality. So that's just kind of my two cents on that. And um, so we're seated with him in the heavenly realms. The next list is, is really interesting. It occurs just a few verses later. Paul really kicks the thesis into gear in terms of you Gentiles, you were once Once uh, um, ostracized, you were called the uncircumcised by those who are circumcised, which is done by hand. You were once at that time without Christ, alienated from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners of the covenants of promise, not having hope, and godless in the world. Uh, Which is interesting because, of course, they had all kinds of gods. So this is an adjective, and the reason why it's plural is because um, it's an adjective referring to what they were once. Uh, so even though they were full of divinities, uh, they were in fact without God in the world. Now this, this list is, um, is rather interesting. It's possible to view these all as, as distinct items, or it's possible that you were at that time without Christ. And then these are kind of elaborating what that looks like. And the reason I suggest that that is because you have participle, then a ke, then participle, and then a ke. So again, I'm paying attention to the structure. There's something that's a little bit different here. But it does seem to be a list. Now, um, and I've just explained that. I believe that these verses so here's two, uh, 2, 11 through 22, 21 no, 22 it is laid out as a chiasm. And I've argued this and um, laid it out. Does't mean it's right. People find chiasms, and uh, I was called the king of chiasmus, mockingly by my, my doctoral fellow peers at Marquette University. And it just made me work harder to justify that no. these are really there. Lexically, it's gotta be lexically based, not just thematically. But whether you believe me or not on that, what I would show you is that these five things that are listed are undone and in the same order, coming back out uh, really interestingly. So in other words, they were without God in the world, but now because we have through him the access both by one spirit, to the Father. So Father, Son, Spirit. Very Trinitarian. So they were once without God. Now they have full Father, Son, and Spirit. And you can see that he's, he's showing these things that they were once lacking, they now have. And by the way, this is where I think the main argument uh, of, of Ephesians gets going, called the probatio in inter rhetorical, rhetorical theory. Those charges that were brought against Paul by the Jews from Asia are all addressed right in this first section, 2.11 to 22. The Gentiles brought into the temple. They're now made the temple of God, the law, and Israel. They're all being addressed right here. OK. now. Obviously, Paul is concerned to show that the Gentiles, the non-Jews, are included in God's saving purposes. This is a very profound moment. This is the next list. This is the mystery that's been given to him. This is what he's pondering about. I mean, he was persecuted to death for this, practically. And probably eventually he was. Uh, That the Gentiles are co-heirs. There's that word, heirs. That was found in the, that initial list of the questions what is the hope? What is the inheritance? They are susoma, co body members, ke summetoka, co participants. Again, the soon. And this, these, these three nouns are, are actually like a study of what happens when you have a preposition soon, what happens to that new. When it's abutted to another consonant it changes notice that each one of these it changes into something different it's like if you're writing a textbook and you want to talk about new changing you want to copy this verse and say look this illustrates it right there it's a very powerful list that the gentiles are with 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 uh, and fellow partakers of the promises in christ jesus through the gospel okay so this is this is the core of what paul is about and this mystery, by the way, this is the mystery, the mystery of the gospel. So the mystery is Christ Himself, and the mystery is also that Christ uh, involves the the non-Jews into the people of God. Yes. Are you okay to any questions? Or would you yeah. Yeah. No. Go ahead. Yeah, no, it's a good Yeah, uh, had a few, but it didn't have exclusively
1: conjunctions. Yeah. So yeah. Other,
0: other, other features of the text we should look for. Yeah, because you don't always have conjunctions. Yeah, it's sure. a good thing. So you're looking for like a piling up of of nearly equivalent kind of descriptors. Hmm. And with this one, because it's so definitional, I mean it's really existential using the verb "imi," me you, know, you were once. And it just dumps a bunch of stuff. And you, know, you could almost, you know, someone could argue, say, well, that's not a list because these are not grammatically equivalent. You got a prepositional phrase, participle phrase, implied, maybe predicate nominative, another participle phrase, a predicate adjective. You say you got you a mixing of, of different grammatical elements. And um, remember, before I said that sometimes the lists have mixed elements, and that causes us to think deeper about it. It certainly did me. And then I noticed the pattern that each of these things that they were lacking now in Christ are, over, are overcome. They have them now. They weren't without them, but now. So, you know, you, we could debate that a bit. But normally you're looking for grammatically uh, parallel or equivalent items. And in this case, you do have the, the kez. But sometimes you don't have any conjunctions. And I'll make sure I'll keep going and we'll see that um, sometimes they're just abutted to each other now what happens cognitively is when when you have this care I mean what do you think happens like when you have a cat because I can show you lists where they're just abutted there's no you know of course they didn't have commas in the ancient text but um, in your mind what do you think happens when you have the care there what's the force of that I think even cognitively progression. it's yeah. progress progr- maybe maybe progression there are well uh, so technically is the progression in English but and is uh, the couplet, joins yeah. Together. yeah yeah so. yeah so it's adding them so they become additive they're additive elements in the grouping there may be a progression but I think I think that might be an implication to what this next point might be, and the more basic things is that it's giving them equal opportunity, equal prominence. So by adding the and, it's setting each one off. This and this and this and this, and, this. and that might point us towards a progression. And uh, so yeah, I think I think that's what's achieved by that. Yes. Yeah. There's, um, there's, uh, so the coding is lessened. So, for example, yeah. you have the A9 here. Yeah. And you're not repeating it all the way through. So, yeah. the, the point is that you're, yeah. the readers expect already set up for it. You can yeah. go as long as you want. Yeah. And you can make changes because you've already set the frame. So yeah. The coding is set and then continue on. Yeah. And part of that framing is, you know, to be the nations. And so it's, it's, um, and I think that's helpful. So it's setting up a framework and a folder. Steve Rungy will talk about a folder. And I like that idea of a folder. So folder is set up. Gentiles are. We're dumping things into the folder. Yeah, and that's really helpful. Just a, it just keeps coming to my mind. Paul d- drops God's name a lot. Have you ever noticed that? I mean, we take it for granted. Jesus Christ this, Jesus Christ that. Why is he doing that? Why is he mentioning God all the time? Why is he mentioning Jesus Christ as Lord? Well, his audience are often pagans, or a mix of people coming out of it. And guess what? Their God folder is full of, of pagan gods. And so he's got to repopulate that folder. And that's why he keeps dropping the name of God. Yep. Okay. Uh, this is another list that could be disputed because the elements are not equal. But I like it because it's the beginning part of the exhortation piece of Ephesians. And um, and actually, I think I skipped. Uh, oh, yeah, the dimensionality of Christ's love. How can we forget this? This is grace. So um, part of what Paul is praying later in chapter 3 is that they would be able to grasp with all the saints. And then it's an indirect question once again. What is the width and the height and the, uh, or the, the, uh, the width and the length and the height and the depth? So you have this dimensionality of, of something. And what is, what is the dimensionality of? Well, this te is a real key here. And to know. This te connects these two infinitives, to comprehend and to know the surpassing of knowledge, love of Christ. So somehow the width and the length and the height and the depth is connected to the love of Christ. Somehow it is. And I love that. I think Paul goes off the deep end in a sense, because how can you know what is unknowable? And I think it's because you can experience it. Like I could try to write a book about my wife and it it wouldn't compare to who she really is. You have to just experience the person. And I think this love has to be experienced. So what, are, what is Paul referring to here? Well, Nils Dahl suggests that this kind of language refers to deep wisdom. So this would have had like cultural significance. Like when you try to grasp something, it just kind of blows your mind. You're just kind of looking at this whole thing, very possibly. Another option is uh, by Robert Foster has suggested it is that these dimensions are found precisely at the point where Ezekiel is measuring the altar of sacrifice, making a big deal of it. So this might be reflective of kind of the new temple that Christ is, and he is the very heart of it, the sacrifice, and he is the love. So I lay those out there. I'm not going to adjudicate between those options, but I do like Foster's suggestion So this list are um, a list of virtues. I do want to watch my time a little bit. Quick thing here is that um, what does it mean to walk worthily of the gospel? I love that he talks about meekness and humility. like That's the first thing. And then he talks about long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, and then being eager to keep the unity of the spirit, and the bond of peace. Now, this is an unequal list, OK? You got some prepositional phrases moving to participles. But still, it's, it's like this. Is it, he's starting to lay out something really important. I started thinking about it. Do you see a progression in the list? Now, the, in this case, there's no ands or anything. There's kind of one abutted to the other. But you start with humility and meekness. You move to long-suffering. Long-suffering involves being patient with another person. And not only are you patient, but you're forbearing of them. Now, forbearing, this is what God has done with us, is forbore us in our sin. And not only are we just forbearing, we're also eager, we're proactive. And I notice the verbal aspect, present tense, present tense. This is something that we're proactive to do. When I look at this initial listing of virtues that are What does it mean to walk worthily of the Gospels? I'm seeing an inner to outer manifestation. Do you see that? It's very intentional. It begins with humility. And man, do we need a dose of that today. We need a dose of that humility. But also being zealous. One of my friends, pastor up in the middle of the night in Berlin, he's like, what does that word mean? I'm like texting him and everything. So I wrote it out. I was like, what I wrote out to him, I I cut and paste there. I love the next verses, seven ones. I think they focus on the one Lord, one body, one spirit, one hope. If you're calling one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of us all, Paul goes. This is a climactic here, because of the inclusive scope. And by the way, I could have I could take you to, and I might maybe do that tomorrow in the presentation, uh, alias Aristides. In the early second century, a pagan philosopher was in a storm wreck, was about to die, and he says, if you save me, Zeus, I'll write a praise to you. And so we have that oration. And boy, does he pile on the all, 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 all in regard to Zeus, like you made everything, all, all, all. So when Paul is writing in this way, again, he's combating prevalent views of other divinities. Who gets to lay claim to all of this stuff? And Paul says God does, God and Father. Do you see that? Are you listing this as a chiasm? Yes, I, yes. Okay. Um, I see that Ephesians really just keeps focusing on the one Lord, okay. Jesus. So Jesus is Lord above all. So I do see this as kind of a chiasm, yeah. What's your connection between the one body and one God the Father, as far as body and God and Father? Well, you can see spirit and baptism, I, can't I, you? So yeah. Yeah, exactly, one hope and faith. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know. Okay. Probably Gnosticism. Yeah. No, I'm just kidding, yeah. <laughs> but it did get me thinking, you know, what is the triune God doing in a list with four other things? That's really odd, and I started digging into paganism and uh, Cicero, his De Legibus on laws, and he writes about how you set up a proper state, how you set up a, a nation, ideally. And he says you start with cult. You start with religion. And you set up cults to things like hope. And hope was a pagan cult. Peace was a pagan cult. Fides was a pagan cult. Some of these things are already out there in in the world and they're actually personified. Like you can see spez, hope, on coins. Okay, then he says, you also set up cults to things that are powerful experiences of God. I'm like, oh, baptism. Hmm, that's where we, you know, and then the body, that's where he is. And, and Roma, by the way, there's a cult to Roma, the body of the Roman people. Again, I'm anticipating my talk tomorrow. Okay, so I got about nine minutes left. Let's, we, we have, so let me, let me go to the anger escalation um, Oh, there's so much. Okay, sorry. I'll try to be a little faster here. So this escalates. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, and brawling, and slander from you with all evil. Now, here we have kez, which are kind of making each of these distinct. And in this case, there is a progression. Bitterness starts inside. Uh, thumos and Orge, people say, oh, well, those are the same things. Well, no, Thumos is more interior. Orge is more the outward manifestation of anger. So we're moving from inner bitterness, which is resentment. And I remember someone said to me, resentment is rethinking the injury, re feeling, resentment. And, and folks, you know, I've got, I could tell you some stories, like life is. Freaking hard, okay? Seriously. I mean, there are people that I have to forgive and repeatedly forgive. And if and the, the temptation to re-feel, resentiment something is there. Resentment. And you gotta get rid of it. Because if you don't, it escalates. Rage, anger. Now, next what happens? Kravge. Kravge is shouting. The anger is now out. <coughs> You're like fighting. Now, some translations say this is fighting, but this is you know, Mediterranean culture. You start yelling at each other, ugh. And it's out. But it doesn't stop there. It leads to blasphemia. What is blasphemia? You begin triangulating. You talk about somebody. So you're not even dealing with just the person anymore. You're like, yeah, that person's an idiot. And then it leaves you in a real bad state, kakia, kakia. Soon passe kakia, all malice. So this is definitely an escalating list. And I did present a paper at this at a at a conference at University of Kentucky, looking at this, comparing anger to uh, uh, Seneca's De Ira, a work on anger. This is something from Arius Didymus on anger. I mean, this is very serious stuff. And you can notice that he's listing things out here and using many of the same. words that we're seeing in our context. Now, what's the remedy to the anger? We have to get to the good news. The next verse, Paul says, but you be kind to one another. And this passage is a study of the pronouns as well. Now, this list is a little bit uneven, right? Because it, ha- it starts with a, uh, an adjective, kind, then it leads to another adjective, but then it leads to a participle. But it's clear that these are abutted to each other, which maybe in the mental conception is kind of part of the package that works together. Be kind to one another, compassionate, forgiving. And a Lutheran pastor leaned over one day at a church and said, Hey, look at this verse. It's translated this way, but this is a reflexive pronoun. It's often translated, forgive each other or something like that, or forgive one another. No, it's reflexive. Forgive yourselves. And for many people, that's the hardest thing to do. In fact, there's a lot of acting out because people don't forgive themselves. A lot of acting out. A lot of do-goodism. You know, and it really, if you think about it, it's a works righteousness. If I can just, I'll just work, I'll work harder. No, forgive yourself. <laughs> Forgive yourself and receive the forgiveness of God. And you're able to do this because God in Christ has forgiven you. This is the basis. Kathos indicates correspondence, it supports this and provides the comparative basis for it. The comparative basis. God has forgiven you. Personal pronoun, you can forgive yourselves. This allows you to be kind and compassionate to one another, this reciprocal community. And I think we need, you know, we need to, you know, encourage this kind of forgiveness, radical forgiveness and kindness. So great verse. I got to go back, though, because we got to look at the fallenness of the Gentiles. This is not a really good list, so this is a question mark, but it is a brutal description of what happens to people who are without God. And perhaps the worst part of this is right in the middle. They're, al- they're having been alienated from the life of God. That's, that's tragic. And in the end, they're left with greed. They're left with giving themselves over to licentiousness and the working of all uncleanness in greed, and that can mean either with, with insatiableness, and that's what sin does, right? Sin promises more than it delivers. Sin always wants to hook you in and, and promise you, oh, this will be so good this one time, just do it. No, hook you in. It wants to keep hooking you in so that you're left actually in a desperate state of greediness. Another possibility is that with greediness means that uh, you're taken advantage of, and if you think about the vices in the world, the worst vices, there's a dollar sign attached to that each one of those. Right? What's the largest industry in the world? It, in fact, it's larger than every other industry that makes money. Pornography. Pornography. Think of gambling. Think of. Alcohol abuse, think of substance, drugs coming across our border, all kinds of stuff. There's a greed attached to sinfulness. But what's the remedy? This is the remedy taught in Christ. You were taught in Christ. You did not learn Christ in this way. We don't go sinning so that we learn Christ more. If you've heard him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. Four references to Jesus right here. And then he lays out what does it mean to be taught in Christ. And this is a three-step moral transformative program. It's indicated by infinitives. That's what marks it off. So there's a grammatical um, similarity there. You have a de, which marks a new development. And then you have a ke. What's interesting is that's aorist tense. You put off the old self. He's using a, a, a metaphor of clothing. Getting undressed, you undress that old self. And you renewed in the spirit of your mind, present tense. This is something that we continually do. And then we put on this new self. This is the three-step program. Anyone who wants to come after me must deny himself, take up his cross, think anew, and come follow me. There's a three-step program that Paul is advocating. uh, we have no more time. Um, you know, you've studied the armor of God. It's pretty awesome. I will have something tomorrow on the armor of God. When we think of the church wearing the armor of God, we, we, uh, we have certain visions of it. But I, I'm going to suggest something else in the ancient world. Uh, so any, any questions at this point? Yeah. Looking at uh, just going back to the anger escalation and forgiveness, since you spent a lot more time on that, what do you obtain specifically by looking at it as a list that you might miss if you're not consciously thinking about this as a list? I don't think people would have seen the escalation. Now, maybe you could. Um, It begins with inclusive scope, all bitterness. So it's not like we can leave just a little bit. And it leads to this end of all evil. So I think because of the kez you're, you're seeing distinct steps in, in a progression in this case. So seeing it as a list causes me to think about why are these grouped together? And in this case, this is the progressive list. And I think it starts from inner to outer. So it's progressive and probably climactic because it, your final state is all malice. You're just wanting evil, complete evil. Yeah, so I think that's what's gained for me. Yeah. Hey, thank you so much. Yeah. Very very helpful. Uh, You know, the big takeaway from this for me is it's another reminder not to look at things only on the micro, but back off and look at things on the macro. Yeah. Holistically. Yeah. Yes, they're made up of individual words, of course. Yeah. Paul didn't just say them one word at a time. No. He said the whole thing. <coughs> and and yeah. uh, that, I think, is tremendously uh, what's well, a reminder of discourse, it's a reminder yeah. of looking at things holistically. It's, yeah, uh, absolutely. So, so valuable. Um, this is the I first exhortations you know, here. Yeah. You and I both teach. Greek yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a temptation, you know, for students to just look at word by word by word. Yeah and we start Sometimes there. The way we teach it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but this holistic is so, Yeah. So yeah, we That's have to s- Yeah, we have to start there, but then we want to you want to get them yeah. into thinking broader. So yeah, I actually summarize, you know, lists in my grammar book, chapter 15. I talk about correlative emphasis using different co- uh, combinations of conjunctions, and then I have a discussion of lists. So, you know, my grammar I'm trying to teach exegetical principles as you go through the text. Well, thank you so much. Um, I'm at Glossa House Booth. I'd be glad to talk with these more. And I have another presentation tomorrow. Pray for me, I'm still putting it together. Uh, (laughs) It's mainly there. But anyway, so one last question, or maybe Um, as you go. I'll
1: ask you. uh, Okay.
0: Okay. Thank you all.